You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Moral Cognition, Telling Right from Wrong, by Gregory Salmieri. The people in this room are moral radicals. Or we do or should fancy ourselves such, at any rate. Many of us are or think of ourselves as objectivists, that is, people who live by the philosophy Ayn Rand developed and articulated in her novels and essays. Others who might not quite be or think of themselves as objectivists are all here because they're interested and excited by in some way sympathetic to this philosophy. And it's a radical philosophy, a philosophy that challenges and turns on its head thousands of years of moral belief that breaks with so much of our culture so deep to the root. We're not traditionalists. We're not people who think there's just a little bit of tinkering around the sides or the margins. If people were only 2% more consistent or something, they'd see that they should do this or that differently. Objectivism is a radical philosophy. Rand claimed to have, and I think she did, validate for the first time a standard of value, the fundamental principles that make ethics a science. But if you are a moral radical, there are a lot of questions that arise to you about what is the status of moral knowledge in other people's minds? What are they right or wrong about? How do they hold it? Let me first raise this question in a sort of weak form, a little bit of a cartoon form, in fact. Um, I was preparing my notes for this talk last week, and as it happened, an article came out on a substack that I read, substack by Brian Kaplan, who's an economist, a libertarian. Uh, a, he's affiliated with the Salem Center, although he's at, at GMU. And his, uh, his article began with a quote from Ayn Rand, uh, a quote about having given a rationally, objectively demonstrable scientific answer to the question of why man needs a code of morals, that no one else had done this before. And Kaplan thinks, suppose she's right about this, suppose everything she says here is true. Wouldn't that imply that nobody ever had any moral knowledge before her? Before 1957, no one knew it was wrong to murder, slavery was wrong, tariffs were wrong, anything else was wrong, wrong to abuse your children. No one knew it before then. That seems weird, thinks Kaplan. That can't be right. But he thinks it's an implication of thinking this, of thinking that Rand has, for the first time, created a scientific ethics, that she's identified the fundamental principles of morality for the first time. Can that be right? Interestingly, in thinking that she's committed to that, he attributes to her a premise that she doesn't hold, namely that you can't know that something's right in morality except on the basis of an argument, and a number of other premises she doesn't hold. But he does think that, and though I think his version of the, the view is a little silly, his worry that maybe nobody knows anything morally is a little silly, as is the alternative he endorses, a kind of intuitionism, where some moral truths are just known by everybody or every decent person because they're obvious, like, you know, don't murder people. And then you argue from those on. 
Pause. Murder people? Yeah, I guess everybody knows you shouldn't murder people. But then is it murdering people to abort a fetus or kill an infidel? The whole issue is what is murder anyway? What may be obvious is there are some forms of killing that are wrong or some things that might be killings that might be wrong. But as soon as you try to specify it, it's not obvious. One of many things wrong with that intuitionist position. But instead of following up on that, I want to move to what I think of as a stronger version of this challenge. The way I was thinking about it last year when I decided I wanted to talk this year on this topic. This question, in what form do people who don't know the moral principles know moral rights and wrongs? What are the different stages or ways you can know them over your life? What is it like to discover them? That's the topic I mean by moral cognition. The processes, the thinking, the stages involved in coming to recognize something as right and wrong, the different ways that you might recognize it fully, partially, differently along the way. Last year, we had a decision come down by a group of people I think a lot about. They're people who I don't think have the right moral principles, but in general who I think are smart and are thinking about right and wrong, and particularly about its political implications. The Supreme Court of the United States. We've had a number of rulings from them just this last week. But I'm thinking about a ruling we got from them last year, Dobbs versus Mississippi. In it, the majority ruled that there was no right to abortion. And there was a particular sentence that stuck in my craw in particular about what I regard to be a profoundly wrong and vicious ruling. But it was this, that the conservative majority striking down the right of bodily autonomy for women cited as an example of what a court shouldn't do. An earlier decision, Lochner versus New York, a decision that's famous because it's one of the times in which an older court, an older version of this court, upheld rights to contract and property, which have for long been seen, which has long been seen by the leftists as a mistake. They took that seriously. They were trying to impose their airy, fairy um, uh, view on society. It's not really what the law says, that you should have these kind of rights that we could impose them uh, on state governments who are democratically elected. Where does the court get off speaking in terms of rights to liberty that include contract and property? Or, it turns out, now thinks Alito, who wrote this, a right to your own body. There are no such things. This man... This bozo who wrote this is rejecting rights entirely. This person does not know, so I thought reading this opinion, the first thing about rights. The first thing about how the American government is founded, about what it's here for. He knows a lot of other things about it, to be sure, but not the first thing. And neither do the five people who wrote with him or the three who wrote in dissent, who all agree with this view of Lochner, and who, while some of them might have been right, I thought, on this particular decision, aspects of it, as Alito's been right on other decisions, aspects of it, including this term, 
Don't understand what their job is. Don't understand what the Constitution is here for. Don't understand what America is. They just don't get it, and don't get it really deeply. It's almost as though when they make a right decision, it's a kind of accident, like a blind squirrel stumbling on a nut once in a while. There is something right about what I'm saying right now. Something right about saying these people are bozos. That it's disgusting and a shame that they are in charge of interpreting our constitution around the highest court of the land. That we should be angry about that. But there's also something wrong about it. It's not quite right. It's not quite an accident when they get things right. They don't know nothing about the country. And if they do, well, who does? Surely not the presidents who appointed them or the senates who confirmed them, almost all the members of which are probably worse than the people on the court, or the people who voted for them. If these people are moral ignoramuses, <laughs> if they know nothing about right or wrong, or in particular, rights, the kind of issue of right and wrong, the moral issue that it's their job to, to oversee, then who does? Let me ask the question another way. Is America any good? Is America any damn good, this country? If nobody, if what's good about it is that it's founded on the principle of individual rights, that's what makes it a moral country. But no one knows or understands that principle, except maybe some of us here in this room and on the live stream and a few other niche groups, but no, none of the people who are controlling the direction of the country, then how is the country any good? What's moral about the country? There are, in fact, people, I think the real moral ignoramuses, who don't think America is any good morally. I'll give you two, Nicole Hannah-Jones and Donald Trump. These are people who don't think, if you judge by their words and actions, that there is an essential moral difference between America the United States of America, and countries like Russia, North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, etc. They may be partial to one or another of these countries, but they don't think one's good despite its flaws and the other is bad. There's a real essential deep difference. But surely, there is. Think about what life is like in those countries. And think about what life is like here. Not just that we're richer, but think of how much freer we are, how much safer we are, how much more just the way in which, by and large, people in this country deal with one another is. Surely that's not an accident. Surely it's based on some kind of knowledge, something that's known or understood widely here, embodied in our laws or something about our government here that isn't there. What is it? Maybe it's our founding documents. Maybe they make our country good. Maybe people a long time ago were good, understood, got the principle, set it up. Now no one understands it anymore, but somehow it's running on its own without anybody having any moral knowledge. But that can't be right, not quite right anyway. First of all, documents, the Constitution, don't have any effect without people able to understand and apply them. If nobody could read English anymore, the Constitution was written in English, no one knew anything about what it meant, it wouldn't govern our lives in any way. And then who is it that's reading it, applying it? Well, these guys, the Supreme Court, now the current court, uh, and the other politicians, different levels, and the people who choose and vote for them because they think that's consistent. So the same people I was worried before 
don't know right from wrong, don't know what's good. Moreover, it's not as though our country was fantastic in 1776 or 1865 and then it's been, you know, nosediving in every respect since then, only and always getting worse. There were lots of respects, obvious respects, in which society has improved morally since its founding. For example, women are able to vote now and in general are treated fully as people in ways that they were not before. There's not slavery and any toleration, uh, and it's recognized as a horror. So it can't just be the past or the legacy of the past. I'll discuss later in what ways the legacy of the past is important. Rather, people who don't know a moral principle clearly often and non-accidentally grasp some of its applications. They're able to understand that there's such a thing as a right and some people have a right to something in a way that's fallible, often mistaken, very messed up, and yet not an accident when they get it right. They have something of the what it is, as Aristotle would put it. They're grasping something of the essence here, even though they have it really wrong in a lot of ways and don't grasp the essence and make a lot of mistakes and maybe even would reject the true principle that explains what's good about it if you put it to them. How is it that people are like that? What is the nature of moral cognition such that we're able to get it right and wrong in the ways that people are, such that it's not an all or nothing kind of thing? That's what I'm interested in. That's what I'm talking about here today. Um, about this lecture. Well, it has six sections. I'm at the end of the first one now. Um, I'm going to talk first, give a kind of very brief summary of some of the content of the objectivist ethics, just to remind us what it is that we're wondering how we know. Then I'm going to talk about cognition generally, how knowledge works generally. A little bit of epistemology, specialized for what use I'm going to make of it. It's not what I'd say if I was just giving a lecture on epistemology. But I'm going to talk about knowledge and the ways it works wider than moral knowledge. Then I'm going to zoom in a little bit and talk about practical cognition. What's meant by practical here is the sense that philosophers use it as opposed to theoretical, not um, that it works well or that it's you know, hands-on, but that it has to do with action. So think of arts rather than sciences. Knowledge should do with doing things. And in particular, I'm going to talk a lot about craft knowledge, knowing how to bake, knowing how to do medicine. This is what the ancients thought a lot about, and they thought there was an important analogy between it and ethics, and I think there is. Then I'm going to go zoom in specifically to moral cognition, the topic of the talk. It'll be the shortest section because most of the work will have been done in setting it up before, setting up how cognition in general works and practical cognition works. And then finally, I'm going to talk about some applications of what I've said to different fields. I'm going to be assuming a lot, saying things and not defending it about what's right and what's wrong, about what objectivism's position on things is. Uh, if you think I'm wrong about any of that, fine. Uh, come up with an example that seems more plausible to you about what's right and wrong and see if you can make what I'm saying work structurally. Um, and also, ask me in the question period or think about who's right about whatever we might disagree about. But what I'm trying to do is think about how the thinking works, and I have to run with examples of it. Finally, a word about the connection of what I'm saying to objectivism. Some of it is just objectivism. I'm saying what Ayn Rand said about certain things. I'll have quotes about topics. But a lot of what I'm saying about cognition generally and practical cognition is uh, my own thinking about this that I think is consistent with objectivism but not part of it and not um, 
Uh, and I'm just going to be kind of giving you reasons for thinking that, but not going in depth on each of the points I make. I hope it'll kind of clear up the question of how it could be that people in one way know and in one way don't know something. And in particular, how you can pass from the one kind of knowledge to the others. Okay. The objectivist morality. In one way, we can think of the objectivist morality as what Galt taught. This isn't the essence of it, but it is the essence of its role in the place where it was introduced, namely at Le Shrugged. It's what Galt goes around teaching people. And what did he teach people? Well, one way it's put in the novel is by Ken Daniger. He merely named what I had lived by, what every man lives by, at and to the extent of such time as he doesn't spend destroying himself. A few notes about this. Notice, there's a sense in which the heroes already know and live by what Galt has to teach before he teaches it to them. They know it already. Dagny says when she reads The Striker's Oath, that's what I've lived by all my life. Ken Daniger says Galt named what he'd always lived by. But of course, there's a sense in which they don't know it already. It makes a tremendous difference when they learn it. Galt changed Daniger's life by naming what he lived by and giving him a way to live by it consistently. Dagny, though she says she's always lived by that slogan, hasn't been living by it and needs to learn to, needs to learn what it means and how she's not living by it, and doesn't, in a way, really understand it all the way down. So there's a way in which you can know it and be practicing it, even while there's something you have to learn, the very same piece of knowledge, in a way. And it's extremely difficult for the heroes to learn it. It's not just that Galt tells them something and they're like, oh, yeah, of course. Life's the standard of value. It's a sacrifice to keep running this company. Some of them, there's just a moment like that where he tells them, but it's because he came just at the right time. When they were right at the level in the learning process where this was the thing they were ready to hear. But there's a long process. One more note about Galt's teaching. Here's how he describes it. He describes himself as, I who have taught men how life is to be loved. So two ways to think about what Galt's teaching people. What they're living by, to the extent that they're actually living rather than destroying themselves, and how life is to be loved. This is the same body of knowledge. What is it? Well, it's that there's a morality of reason, a morality proper to man, and that man's life is its standard of value. It's that all that which is proper to the life of a rational being is the good, and all that which destroys it is the evil. It's what man's life is. What kind of life is proper to a rational animal? What promotes, preserves, and destroys it? You need to adjust my mind. Proper to the life of a rational animal. Are we good now? It's knowledge of what, for a human being, supports and promotes his life and what destroys it. 
Well, what does promote it? And what does destroy it? At the root level, thinking. And the evasion of thinking destroys it. Our only basic virtue is to think, to turn on our minds, to engage them, to try to know the world. And our only basic vice, the source of all our evils, is the act of blanking out, the willful suspension of one's consciousness, the refusal to think. And this is an issue we confront in every hour, in every day. A single basic choice, thinking or non-thinking. There's a fundamental alternative we face here, to think or not. Thinking is pro-life, in the rational sense of that term. And non-thinking, evasion, is anti-life, destructive to life. It's a piece of causal knowledge. To think is good for you. To think supports your life. And not thinking and avoiding thinking destroys it. It's not just that people don't think, though. They refuse to think. It's not just that people have knowledge or they're ignorant. For any piece of knowledge, almost, there are people who are ignorant of it. But there are also people who are refusing to know it. And I think we have to take that seriously and think seriously what that means. In an earlier talk on objectivity, I really stressed the idea that knowledge is work. And that's going to be a kind of quiet scene throughout this talk. There's something to knowing. There's something you have to do to know. You could shirk that work. In which case, it's not, oh, poor, innocent you, you don't know. You're not doing what you need to do to know. But worse than shirk that work, you could undermine it. You can counterfeit it. There's a difference between cognition and the pretense of cognition, between reasoning and rationalizing. A distinction Ankar Gatte was eloquent on yesterday or two days ago. Um, not only can people fail to do the thinking involved in grasping with right and wrong, they can counterfeit it. Going forward in this talk, I'm going to focus on the work of knowing right from wrong, of knowing what's good, and on the errors possible even when one is being honest in that. But most people aren't honest all the time about the most difficult questions. And as soon as you see that there are steps in something, that there are complexities, there are ways to honestly go wrong, every one of those also occasions countless dishonest ways to go wrong, constant ways to fake there, or to just pretend to yourself that it was too hard or too confusing or too subtle or that this other factor matters. So I'm going to focus, because I want to focus on the work involved in getting it right when things go well. Um, I need to use the mic. Okay. I want to focus on the work involved when things go well. I'm not going to focus on the dishonesty, but there's always the risk of it. Can people hear me well now? Have you been, has it been hard to hear me up till now? So I've just been talking to myself here for a while. Okay. The story so far. Morality is about how to live, how to love your life. The standard of value is man's life. What morality tells you is what a thing like you, a human being, needs in order to live. What things are good for, support the life of a being like you, and what things destroy that. The basic one that's good, that supports your life, is thinking. 
The antithesis of that is non-thinking, the act of evasion, blanking out, working to subvert your own consciousness. That's the fundamental of the objectivist ethics. And then there are a list of values and virtues. And each of the virtues is the recognition of a fact. Rationality is the recognition of the fact that we already focused on, that you need to use your mind to know reality. And that you don't automatically do that. You can fake it or just default on it. It's the recognition of the fact that reality is there, whether you know it or not. And it's up to you to work to know it, to use your tool, your reason to know it and to live in it. This phrase, recognition of a fact, you might recognize as how Rand, uh, a formula Rand uses when she's talking about knowledge. You're recognizing a fact. Each of the virtues is a knowing of something, something you can work to know and hold in mind in an instant, and that you can characteristically be someone who knows and acts on. The other virtues are recognitions of more specific facts. They're pieces of knowledge. Knowledge, for example, that, to take honesty, the unreal is unreal, and therefore can't be of any value. Knowledge, to take productiveness, that your values don't just come about. If they're to be real values, you have to make them and produce them. In the case of pride, that the same is true for the value of your own character, for your self-esteem. Two more aspects of objectives I just want to hit and run on, just mention to remind us what it is that we're knowing. How it is that rational beings can successfully deal with one another. Not by looting or mooching, not by sacrifice of one to the other, not by attempting to get something at someone else's expense or against someone else's will, but by mutual exchange to mutual advantage by mutual consent, the trader principle. And that there are certain, this imposes certain requirements or implies certain requirements for any society of rational beings. That rights are conditions of human existence in a social context. It's what we require of a society in order to function in it. It's the freedom we need in order to live the way that human beings live when they're not destroying themselves in a society with one another. Knowledge is causal knowledge. It's knowledge of how a human being lives, what promotes human survival, and what doesn't. It's general, abstract knowledge about a certain species, the human species, and what, at a very broad level of abstraction, contributes to our survival and what doesn't. What do we mean by at a broad level of abstraction? Well, it's not like protein or food. You know, these are things that we need to survive, and they're pretty abstract. It's not like you know, milk, which is less abstract than that. But it's much more broad, general guidance. We need reason. We need to think rather than evade. We need to recognize certain facts about the relationship between our consciousness to existence. We need to deal with one another by persuasion and trade. We need to have a society that's organized around giving us each the space to do that, protecting it from encroachment by the others. How do we know these things? What are the different ways in which they can be known? 
What are the different ways in which we can know anything? I move now to the topic of cognition in general. There's something weird about this Brian Kaplan, you know a moral truth or you don't. You might think either or, that's an axiom, so you know it or you don't. But there's something odd about that. It maybe sort of makes sense when what you're thinking of knowing is a sentence. Do you know that this sentence is true? But like, I see Peter out there. It doesn't make sense if I ask, do you know Peter? Yes or no? Well, I've met him, but I don't know him that well. Like, there are degrees of how well do you know something. I know who he is, but we're not that well acquainted. I know this one better than that. I think when we think about knowledge, we want to think about what it is that we know. And it's not sentences. Sentences are a form in which we know something else. What do we know? Well, we know things that exist. Entities, like people, animals, things, places, etc. Maybe more complex things like countries, movements, corporations. We know attributes, how entities are. Actions, what entities do. Relationships, what entities are to one another. Like so-and-so is a student to so-and-so, or a teacher to so-and-so, or a parent to so-and-so. Other things like this, we know things that exist in the world, objects, entities, and their attributes, actions, relations, quantities, etc. And when you think about knowing something, not as a proposition, a sentence you know, but a thing you know, someone, an act, something they did, some event even, it makes a lot more sense to ask, how well do you know blank? Not just do you know it or not, but how well do you know it? And to think about maybe getting to know it better over time. Think about getting to know a person better. What does that involve? Well, you discover new, wholly unknown aspects of it. You play the drums? You immigrated from Russia? I didn't know that at all. But also, you refine your knowledge, even of areas where it's, there's not some total new surprise. For example, you refine your knowledge of someone's character, their taste, their sense of humor, etc. Think about as you get to know someone better. Think about someone you know really well versus someone you only know a little bit. One thing I want to point out about this, much of this happens wordlessly without being conceptualized. You come to know someone and you get a better and better sense of what things they like and what things they don't like, how they act, what jokes they'll make or not make, what their way of talking is. And maybe you can put some of that knowledge into words. The more articulate, the more thoughtful, the better your vocabulary, the more observant you are, the more you've developed the skill, the more of it you'll be able to put into words. But you'll never be able to do it without remainder. It's never the case, unless all you learned about someone you learned from books, that you can list out you know, 135 sentences, this is everything I know about David. Right? There's more. We learn about something, we get to know something better, and we conceptualize the observations we make about it. We articulate them. But it's not only and inherently a conceptual process. It's not a process just of learning things identified in concepts. It's of observing things, getting to know something better, and conceptualizing, capturing in concepts, what it is that we're noticing about them. Usually, with some remainder 
residual that hasn't yet been conceptualized, that's there to, you know, you're going to try to get it better. You're going to put more and further concept on it. You're going to refine it over time. So there's a process of better and better conceptualizing what one in some sense already knows. And there's also a process of getting to know something better and better without conceptualizing it. Generally, these go hand in hand. You conceptualize things as you learn more about them. So it's not they're totally disparate processes. But some of what's involved in getting to know someone better happens even if you don't have put words to it. You just get a better and better sense of them over time. More and more memories of them accumulate. You're more and more familiar with them. You can do that without conceptualizing any of it for a period. And then you could have at a separate time, you kind of think back, let me try to put words to everything I've learned about so-and-so in the past year. Typically, they happen, you know, more interactively than that. I've talked about it, this kind of wordless getting to know someone, this inarticulate getting to know someone, about getting to know an individual. But it's often true, too, even when we're getting to know kinds of people. Suppose you spend some time in France, and you get to know some things about the French, ways in which they're like and different from people in America, the French in general. Or... You spend some time with dogs or fish or a certain kind of plant and you get to know more and more about how they are that you haven't quite put into words yet by observation. This is something that happens. And a lot of our learning happens this way. This is my son rolling a sphere, or rolling rather, not a sphere, a cylinder. And this is my paradigm of starting to learn about causes in the world in an important way. Kids spend a lot of time moving and manipulating things before they have words, or when they have words, but not enough of them to describe what they're learning. Indeed, I don't have enough words to describe what Alan learned by manipulating this rolling cylinder. Probably you'd need a large part of physics to conceptualize it all and identify it fully. But it's not just that he learned about this cylinder or cylinders in general, and I don't think he's unusual in this respect. If you think about children, they spend a lot of time manipulating objects that fall into classes that we don't quite have words for or normal words for. All of these are things that turn about one axis. He certainly doesn't have a word that subsumes all of them. But so many of his toys are like this. And so much of what he did for so much of his first two years was rolling them back and forth, noticing they move in one direction and back in the opposite direction, but not at angles to that. Noticing how, how they move depends on how hard you push them and at what points. Noticing how different ones move differently, how some of them tick and make noises when they move and some of them don't, how it feels, what the resistance is. Think of all that knowledge gathered about, in effect, turning things, none of which he has any word for. He has the word turn, he has the word ball eventually, now he has tons of words, but I don't even quite have a word for all of this. A lot of what we're doing is getting to know causes, getting to know them not always in words, not initially in words, and then more and more putting words to, conceptualizing, articulating what we know. Both of those parts of the process are important and they're closely related. Turning now then from this learning of causes more directly to conceptualizing them. What do I mean by conceptualizing? Well, forming concepts, conceptually identifying new things one observes, 
I form the concept dog and I see a thing, oh, that's a dog, I'm identifying it. But also using the concepts I form to identify things I remember, to try to organize and articulate some of what I, oh, this barking is the name for that sound and that's the thing I've heard dogs do, but it's different from growling and these are different sounds and, you know, etc. Conceptualizing what I already know about dogs. Importantly, conceptualizing causes. Identifying conceptually the things about the things one knows that one already in some form knows that determine how they act. It's the round things that do this. The things that are round in one dimension. You have causal knowledge about how things roll and move and you formulate it more and more explicitly. Maybe you write physical formula like a physicist will do about it eventually. And then also you're sometimes forming theories about the causes where you don't know them. Someone's gotten sick, I don't know what causes it, but I have some ideas, and uh, you form theories about it. New, um, this process is iterative. What do I mean by that? It's not just you know something wordlessly with no concepts, like an infant or an animal might know it, or you're Isaac Newton or something. Likewise, with morality, it's not you know nothing or you're John Galt. There's stages of conceptualizing things. You have it in a kind of rough way versus you have it more precisely. You know that there is something like rotational motion, but you don't have formulas for it. You don't quite have it distinguished from some other forms of motion that it's sort of related to. It's iterative. Moreover, as you iterate, you reconceptualize, you get more and more details to the conceptualization, you're going to be making more and more observations all the time. Some of those observations are going to be occasioned or powered by the ways you've conceptualized things up till now. The concepts you've formed, the theories you've formed, the hypotheses you're testing, the ways you're organizing your knowledge. And whatever you learn from those observations is going to be initially recorded and held in terms of those concepts but they're now new observations still. And then that's going to power and occasion the need to form more and more concepts. So you have a complex iterative process. And it's a highly fallible process. There are lots of misconceptualizations, invalid concepts or concepts that turned out to be wrong, false theories of what causes what, misdescriptions of things. I'll give you a few. Aristotle distinguished between lunary and uh, sublunary and superlunary objects with distinctive forms of motion. Things from the moon on down to us basically move in straight lines, but the moon and above just go in circles. Not true. Looks that way. Not a crazy thing to think, but turned out to be a distorting way of holding things. Humoral medicine and all the other forms of traditional medicine from various cultures, you know, you're made up of four fluids and you have to balance them and so forth and if you're sick it's because they're out of balance. The miasma series of disease, the idea that um, there's a stuff phlogiston that gets released in fire uh, from flammable things. Race science of the type that was popular in the early 20th and late 19th century. Um, the diagnostic categories of the DSM in psychology now not that they're totally awful but they're not, I don't think anyone thinks they're quite right and they're being revised and so forth. Um, Mistaken concepts and mistaken theories. How do these things work? Well, I think 
we have to think of them as corrupting existing knowledge. If someone didn't know a lot about the ways in which people can go wrong, about the kinds of psychological ailments people could have, if they hadn't seen a lot of patients and didn't have a lot of patient notes, they probably wouldn't have come up with the theory that people are, have these four humors and they can get them out. It's an attempt to integrate and explain something that was observed about people. Likewise, that there are however many diagnostic categories of disease are in the DSM and they fall. DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, I think, that psychologists use. Um, there's a lot of observational knowledge about people and what happens to them that's attempting to be integrated by these things. That knowledge was already there before these concepts were introduced and this con these concepts are trying to help us organize it, help us understand it better. But it's not that they sort of don't do anything. It's not like the knowledge is there and fine, and there's this overlay of mistake on it, if there's a mistake. The mistake shapes how we hold it. It, it introduces error into our very body of knowledge. It corrupts the knowledge. And because the process is iterative, it's going to corrupt how we learn new things in the field, um, skew our observations, make us look in certain places and not others, make us interpret them in different ways. And yet, there still will be new perceptual information, new facts taken in all the while we're making these errors. So that when you have any advanced body of conceptual thought that has misconceptualizations in it, as almost all do, you're going to have a really complicated situation, not either a baby or some bathwater, but a baby in some bathwater. You're not going to have something, the field, that is either healthy with a few little things around the side that you can just kind of slice off that aren't really doing any work, or something or that's total poison and rot, total evil, with no elements of knowledge anywhere in it, that it would be hard to get from scratch. Occasionally you'll have that. You have theology, which I think is largely that. And you have, you know, some in some of the sciences, occasionally, now, after much hard work, are basically true with a little bit of junk around some edges. But the normal state is not either of those things. It's that you have a kind of muddle with a complex interaction of stuff that's been learned and ways it's been conceptualized, some of which are wrong, and which are affecting the whole structure of how it's held and understood. So that much intellectual advance, many of the biggest intellectual advances, take the form of reconceptualizing existing material. No, there aren't sublunary and superlunary objects that move in fundamentally different ways. The apple falls like the moon goes around. It's the same thing once you understand motion differently. It's not miasmas or humors that cause disease, but little living things that get passed around between us. Human beings aren't like breeding animals where our traits are caused by who our ancestors were. We're rational beings whose traits are caused by our minds and our thinking or refusal to think. And whatever the right answer is to how to organize this stuff in the DSM. These are advances. But they're advances that are primarily about reorganizing, rethinking, re-understanding in, in better terms, conceptualizing better information where the observations that are the kind of matter or basis of that information is already there. 
rather than going out and learning new things from scratch, learning new observations. Though, of course, that's often involved in the process as well. Where are we? I've been talking about the process by which we learn. I've been talking about cognition generally. And I've been talking about it in a way that doesn't involve teachers yet. I've been talking about how you learn from reality. You observe things. You maybe get to know someone. You conceptualize what you learned. And you get to know them, the person, the place, the thing, the field, the type of thing, better and better. And you conceptualize it more and more precisely. But we don't only learn from scratch like that. We generally learn things that are known before, or in any case have been conceptualized before, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. And I want to say a word or two now about some of how that works. Here's Alan exploring his things that roll. Notice none of them are natural objects. All of them have been made by people who know about rolling. They've already formed the concept wheel, cylinder, circle, ball, axis. And precisely because they formed those concepts, they were able to make these things that are fun for him to play with and explore and learn certain things about motion and cause and effect and the world when he did it, when he does it. Good education involves a pedagogically prepared environment where we make things that are specifically designed to pass on certain concepts, to help someone form certain concepts by observation. This is a Montessori material with cylinders of different diameters. So a lot of the way we learn from other people is the same, the way other people can scaffold our learning isn't just by telling us stuff, but by preparing an environment for us in which it's easier for us to discover things by observation and easier for us to conceptualize the things we're observing because they have those concepts already and they're shaping our environment by them. This is the case with pedagogically prepared environments, environments that are prepared to teach, but it's also the case with the environments that's constructed knowledgeably around us even when the aim of it isn't teaching. Look around, look at this room. How many right angles are there? How many would there be if you were in a jungle? Maybe the trees are going up versus the ground, but then the ground is curvy. How many hexagons or oxagons? How many things in primary colors that are well differentiated from the colors around you? Not because how many basically round things on the rug. and that There are geometric patterns, things constructed, not because the person who designed this room is trying to teach you anything, but just because he has that knowledge, it's effective, efficient knowledge to use in building things and structuring things, but you're in a world where so many things are shaped in those ways that it's a lot easier for you to form concepts of geometry, concepts of math, even if you in effect had to do it from scratch with no teacher, than it would be if you didn't live in buildings where things were shaped by knowledge of those principles. The man-made environment can be structured intentionally or otherwise to suggest and pass on concepts to us. I've been talking about it with valid concepts, but the same is true with misconceptualizations. Think of a traditional way of living 
that seems natural to people, that seems like it's part of how human beings have to live, because it's all anyone's ever known in that. Think of a caste system, like the Indian caste system or the racial caste system that traces back to slavery in much of the Western world. Uh, think of living in a system like that, where all the people of a certain ancestry you meet have played a certain role in the society and only been given certain opportunities and haven't been educated and so forth, and others who have different ancestry have been. You might think there's just a natural difference between these people. Some are knowledgeable, some are well-spoken, and others aren't. Some are more adapted to physical labor and some are more... And you might think that this is just built in. People did think that this kind of thing was built in because the environment was prepared structured based on this false way of conceptualizing people, this false way of carving people up. And when everything is structured that way, it's easy to kind of induce that mistakenly from the environment. Likewise, um, uh, gender norms. I'm not saying that all the gender norms we have or anyone has are merely conventional and not based on anything in nature, but some are. Like that pink is associated with women and blue with men. You know, it used to be the other way around. That's just how someone decided to do it at some point, but it just seems obvious to people some of the time. Uh, some of them are grounded in nature, and it's hard to always tell sometimes where the difference is on particular things. So a lot of the way in which we pass conceptual content onto one another is through preparing and structuring environments and practices that people kind of grow up in and imbibe or just see around them that passes on a lot of true knowledge, a lot of correct conceptualizations, making observations easier to make and easier to identify conceptually. But also it can pass on errors, pass on misconceptualizations, can occasion the need for the kind of rethinking, the checking of your premises. That's central to so many intellectual advances. That's what I have to say about cognition in general. Now, practical cognition, and more briefly, moral cognition. What do I mean by practical cognition? Thinking, learning, coming to understand how to act, how to do something. And the traditional examples of this, going back to Greek philosophy, are crafts, medicine, how to create and promote health, baking, how to create baked goods, carpentry, how to build things out of wood, blacksmithing, how to make things out of iron, Metal. We can add pedagogy, how to teach, management, how to organize people and get them to accomplish things, persuasive writing, how to convince people of things. And of course, the fine arts, literature, music, painting, sculpture, filmmaking, etc. There's a lot of how to knowledge in each of these fields that someone can come to have, that people do come to have. And I want to think a little bit about what the kind of thinking, what the work of knowing is in these fields, how it works. I want to start with a mistaken view of craft learning, of learning a craft. The mistaken view is that you begin learning a craft with clear, articulate knowledge of the end. I know what I want to make. I know what I want to do. I know what this craft is for. And then the process of learning or discovering for the first time the craft whether you're learning it from someone else or discover you're the guy coming up with it for the first time, is just figuring out the means by which you can bring this end about. That's not true. That's not how crafts develop. It's not how people come to know them. It might seem you have to have the end first and you work out the means to it, and what you discover is the causes of the thing you want. But 
if you think of examples of it, it's not right. First of all, you can't really have something as an end, as a goal. It can't be a goal for you unless you have some idea of how to achieve it. You have to have some knowledge of what will get you to something to even set it as a goal, some sense of what kind of thing would do it. So you already have to have a means-end kind of understanding, a cause-and-effect relationship in mind to even formulate a goal. But secondly, if we think about people learning these crafts, do they really always know what they're for explicitly, clearly? Even people who are pretty good at it. If you got like a lot of people who you thought were good teachers, who got good results, and you ask them, what is the goal of teaching? Are you confident that they all give the same answer? And that how good their answer is would, would track exactly with how good teachers they are? Would they say it's about imparting knowledge, imparting skills, preparing people for life, instilling character traits? I'm not saying there's not a right answer to this question. I think there are right answers to all these questions. But people are often better at teaching than they are at answering questions of what you're doing when you're teaching. Medicine didn't start out with a clear understanding of what health is. For example, that it was the balance of those four humors. It started out with a sense that people could get sick and people could be well. I don't quite know how to tell always when they're well or exactly what wellness is. I know something about it. I know there are things we can do that affect it. Although I don't know quite what they are and quite what it is. In the fine arts, did all the composers know just what music was? They could define it well? Do people know, have to know what a novel is and what it accomplishes and how to write it well? My point isn't to poo-poo this abstract aesthetic knowledge of the arts. I think it's really valuable and can play a major role in being a great artist, in being a great teacher, in being a great doctor. It's important. We should have it. We need it. However, it's not that it comes first and everything is working out the means to it. Rather, typically, our conceptualization of the end, the goal of a craft, develops alongside our understanding of the means to this craft. The elements of practical learning come together. It starts in a way by grasping causal relationships. This causes that. But over time, you grasp them with increasing precision. And you have to have some grasp of a causal relationship of what causes what, even to set something as a goal. Because if you don't have any idea of how to achieve it, it's not something you can have as a goal. Then, once you grasp in some form, maybe vaguely, maybe not too precisely yet, a causal relationship, you can choose some of the effects as values to pursue. And then you can organize your activity around pursuing those values by enacting those causes, pursuing those effects by uh, enacting those causes. And as you do this, you iterate your causal knowledge. You iterate this whole process as your causal knowledge becomes more extensive and more intensive. You start knowing about more and more different cause and effect chains, things that can cause different things, and you start knowing in greater and greater detail about the causes and effects you already know. Where this mic is pointing is a cause of how loud my voice is. But what exactly is the range? How far away do I have to point it? Right As I'm here trying to get by with this microphone, I'm learning wordlessly and now putting into words uh, more intensively about this causal relationship between the direction of the microphone and my voice and using it to better navigate this situation. These are elements of practical learning. And again, they iterate. 
as you conceptualize, conceptually identify the causes, form theories about them, you get a lot more insight, a lot more power, a lot more control when you get it right. But there's also mistakes that can be made. False medical theories, for example. Think about learning the fine arts. People learning a fine art, learning how to paint, learning how to write, typically go through phases where they overvalue various of the techniques they learn. There's a certain technique that has a certain effect that can be used to good effect. Maybe you first noticed it because someone used it really well and it made something really moving. Maybe very fast virtuosic violin playing in a kind of piece and, and that led to the climax and got you really excited. But now you become all about speed. You overfocus on speed. You don't really know what the speed is for or when it's for. And you write these, you write or play these trick violin pieces that don't move anybody. A guitar player uh, friend once commented to me that a certain style of guitar playing sounds like progressive slot machines, and uh, it's that kind of tapping Eddie Van Halen was. Um, but you get a kind of overvaluing of a kind of technique. You don't know what it's for, or how to use it. And it's a typical thing. Almost everybody learning to write or learning to play an instrument or learning to cook goes through phases like this. Think of theories of pedagogy or management that overstress some real or important element of the means to the end or then that are wholly wrong. They really misconceptualize it. But either way, there are all kinds of ways you can get the concepts wrong, the conceptualization wrong of something that in some sense you already know. What are the effects of such errors? Well, they don't delete the content that you already have, what you already knew before you made them. They don't make it the case that the things that you notice under the sway of such errors aren't real at all. However, they do distort and corrupt what you already know. They make you use it and understand it wrongly. They make it the case not that you have to exactly start from scratch as though you had to relearn and reobserve everything. But they do call for a kind of separating of the wheat from the chaff, a kind of decomposing of the body of your thought on this issue back into the stuff you observed and the way you've organized it. Back into observation and theory. Not that all the observation comes in the theories overlaid. It's a complex interrelation between observation and conceptualization of what you've observed. between observations of the causes and effects and conceptualizations of them, between the values you formed based on the ways you conceptualize these causes and effects. Speed is good. There are many learning styles, etc. Um, and the observations that gave rise to them. So there's misconceptualization and reconceptualization in practical learning, learning of skills. Finally, on the practical learning point, I want to talk a little bit about practical learning from others, because everything I've said about practical learning so far, like the first bunch of things I said about cognition in general, is true if you're the first person discovering a fact or if you're learning from others. But I want to focus on some things that are specific to learning from other people. First, you can learn from other people a practical skill as a role model. You're an apprentice to someone, and you just see how they do it, and you try to do it better. And third, second, you can learn it by rules that they've taught you. 
A lot of learning by role model is kind of mimicry, or starts as a kind of mimicry, certainly with children. My son and I swim together. We have a pool in the backyard. And sometimes afterwards, I'll shower with him, and I'll take a shower, and, and then he'll be in there, and I'll wash his hair with the soap and so forth. And one day I was doing this, and I noticed him making all these weird postures. And he was, I realized he's doing about a second after I do all the motions I'm doing to get the water to run down to certain parts of me to wash away the soap that's there. But he doesn't have any soap on him, and he's not standing in the water. He's just, this is how you take a shower, um, his role model for how to do it, and he's kind of striking all these poses as though it were a dance. He's embodied this activity from a role. He doesn't know why he's doing these things. He just knows that I'm doing them, and that's part of what we're doing together. So he's trying to do them. You can learn from role models that way. That's kind of, in a way, how it starts. He knows I know more than him about showering, I suppose. Um, but he doesn't understand why he's doing it, right? You could likewise learn rules, always do this, always raise your hand up and, you know, after you've put soap under your arm, um, where you're doing effectively the same thing. But what happens is you can go from even that inarticulate, in effect, aping of a procedure someone's doing, to grasping the cause and effect sequences in it, to articulating them, to forming values there. You can get all of these elements of practical learning more and more, starting from a phase where you're imitating somebody. And it happens in degrees. Sometimes, for example, you're following a recipe when you're cooking. You're cooking by rule. And you really have no idea what any of the steps do. Your first time cooking, you're just reading this thing out of a book. But most of the time, you have some idea. You understand somewhat why you're putting it in the oven now, why you're whisking, why you added flour and not something else at this point, right? And you can come to know in more and more detail as you go until at some point you understand the thing wholly and you have the observations to back it up. Right? So we can learn from others as a kind of aid to the way we learn the actual process we're coming to understand. We're grasping causal relationships. We're choosing some of the effects as values to pursue by enacting causes. We're organizing our activity around this value. And we're integrating, iterating this process as our knowledge becomes more extensive and intensive. And people can be in different degrees, different stages of that process where it's scaffolded by others who are serving either as role models or providers of rules. Now we're to the central topic. But there's not really all that much to say about it because it's just applications of what I've said already. Moral cognition. Well, ethics is the master craft. Ethics is the study not of how to make bread or how to make things out of iron or how to promote physical health. It's the science of how to live. It's the craft of living. A true ethics teaches you how to integrate your values and activities into a whole self-sustaining life. But even a false ethics teaches a code of life, a code of values by which to shape one's life, a way to live. Just like a false medical theory teaches a regime a way to go about pursuing health. Or not quite health, but something they call health, right? One learns in ethics from reality and from other people in the way that one learns other practical knowledge or in the way that one comes to 
take over or make for the first time other practical errors. One grasps causal relationships with increasing precision. One chooses some of the effects as values to pursue. One organizes one's activities around these values. And this process iterates as our causal knowledge becomes more intensive and extensive. And what's most significant here is extensive, from knowing how to make a loaf of bread, from knowing how to roll something back and forth, to knowing how to sustain a human life across a human lifespan, knowing how to interact with other people, knowing how to form and live in a society freely. What is it then to know that something is good or right? It's to know in some form how it contributes causally to one's ability to live as a human being. And to know that something is evil is to know in some form how it is destructive to one's ability to live as a human being. I say to know how, not to know that. And I don't mean in the sense of know how, but if I said to know that it contributes causally to your ability to live as a human being, it might sound like a binary thing. Do you know this or do you not know it? Do you know that sentence, this contributes to a human life, or do you not? But if I say know how it contributes to a human life, I think that puts us more in the frame of mind of we're grasping a certain causal connection. We're grasping how dishonesty undermines you. We're grasping how force paralyzes and destroys. We're grasping how honesty, how rationality, how trade benefit us. How? There's a lot under that how. There's more and more intensive things to know about it. How it works, how it works in this situation, in that situation. The degrees, the magnitude. There's a lot to know. More detail, actually, than will be part of ethics. Some of the how for some of the stuff about how trade and rights works is economics, right? Other sciences. But there's a fact here, a causal connection that we're coming to grasp. We can be in touch with it in different ways to different extents and have it more or less conceptualized, more or less precisely conceptualized, more or less correctly conceptualized. There is some prerequisite knowledge, though, to having this idea at all, to grasping that something is good for you, to know that it contributes causally to one's ability to live as a human being. You have to have a unit perspective on oneself as a human being. You have to know, and think about a little kid knowing this, and they know this pretty early, right, in some form. I'm the same kind of thing as all these other people. What they do, I can do. If daddy gets into this position in the shower, I could do that too, because I'm the same kind of thing as him. An awareness, perhaps imprecise, of what human living consists in, of what it is that we do and why we do it. That knowledge for children is very imprecise, but it's not contentless. You get what it's like to move through the world as a human being, some of the things human beings do pretty early. You get more and more of it as you go older, over longer and longer timescales, more and more extensive and intensive knowledge of it. But pretty early you have something, some sense of what it is human beings are doing in the world, some very inarticulate sense of it. And some awareness, perhaps imprecise, of the impact of whatever you're judging on one's life. It hurts. It prevents me from doing this. It helps me to do that. Insofar as someone has these things, a unit perspective on himself as a human being, an awareness, perhaps imprecise, 
in some form of what human living consists in, and an awareness perhaps imprecise, and I can add to both of these perhaps imprecise, perhaps error-laden, but not so undercut by error that there's nothing left there of the impact of the thing on this life. So long as you have that, you can be aware in some form, perhaps in a partial form, perhaps even in a corrupted form, but still there's some awareness there, of the causal relationship that some things sustain life, your life as a human being and would sustain anyone's life, and that other things frustrate it. And that that's something we grasp and need to grasp in order to function long before we can fully articulate and defend it, fully understand what it is that we're doing. We have knowledge there, knowledge that can be more and more conceptualized, more and more purified of error, because as it's conceptualized, and it's all been conceptualized by others before us, and by us in our growing up, when we're doing it uncarefully, likely a lot of errors are created and distorted, but it can be made precise and purified. And that is the work of moral philosophy. These slides on misconceptualization and moral cognition, moral learning from others, basically just recapitulate the points I made about practical learning in general. They're really just the same slides, and I wanted to bring them up to um, just make that point. But I want to spend a little bit on this idea of learning from a structured society in the way you can learn from a prepared environment in a Montessori classroom, or from educational materials, or in the way that it's easier for us to learn geometry, living in a carpentered world, a world of objects made by people who understand geometry. I want to return to the question of, is it America's founding documents that make the country good? Is it America's political system that makes the country good, that is responsible for some of the moral goodness of the country, and, and how could that be if people don't understand that system? Well, it was forged by people who only partially understood it, didn't understand that all the way down in every respect, understood a lot more maybe than the current SCOTUS judges, although on some issues maybe understood less. But it created an environment in which people have to interact with one another by trade, in which people are interacting by trade, in which people are settling disputes with one another by the rule of law, by persuasion, in which there's an attempt to balance powers. It's created an environment in which, through passing on the practices that were made based on these principles, you pass on a situation socially where in order to function, and while one's functioning, one can make the kinds of observations from which these principles were induced much more easily than one can in other situations. One can learn, come to be dealing with one another by trade, come to be dealing with one another by persuasion, come to be dealing with one another honestly, productively, in a way that would be much more difficult or impossible if one were living in an anarchy, if one were living in a dictatorship. It's easier to morally know in a freer society. 
And so people come to have more, maybe not precise, maybe not fully conceptualized, maybe not good enough moral knowledge because of the legacies of the moral knowledge of the past and of the people who structured the country. I'm going to end the formal presentation there. I have a bunch of points of application that I'd like to have occasion to talk about, but they're each possibly topics for other talks. I'll just put them up in case people want to ask about them in the question period, how you can assess movements, what the implications of this are for intellectual activism, for moral education, and for personal growth. Thank you all. We should have about 15 minutes for questions. Go Thank ahead. for that presentation, very lively. Um, I teach a course in the fine arts, and there's an essay that I have due this coming Wednesday, Thursday. And out of my 30 students, five have turned in their assignment. All five have used ChatGPT. We have an original detection device, and it shows AI detection. Pretty much, we have been told anything over 60%. It's pretty fair that they used it. I called each of those students, whether through email or phone, and one of them had a defense. Not sure if it's good, want to get your thoughts on it. He says, I wrote my own paper, put it in ChatGPT, corrected my mistakes. I did not copy someone else's work. ChatGPT is not a person. And what's the difference between what I did and what, oh, I'm sorry, what's the difference between my using ChatGPT as a tutoring service versus going to a person at the Learning Resources Center at the college uh, and working with one of those tutors. Um, there seems to be a moral ambiguity when it comes to this here, and I'm not sure well, there are, what to do about that. There are two issues. There's whether the student's telling you the truth, and if he is telling you the truth, whether that's uh, a good use of that technology and whether it's uh, appropriate. So he could... Someone could do just what he says, could write their own paper, could use it to copy edit it. It could be really helpful in copy editing it in just the way a tutor might be. And um, because someone could do that, uh, and then it would show up as some of this was written by ChatGPT, they could also just have it write the paper from scratch and lie to you about it. So the first thing is you've got to make a judgment about what he's doing, and if this is coming up a lot, you've got to um, structure your assignments in your class in such a way that... Uh, you can tell the difference between those two things if one of those is going to be allowed and one of them isn't. Um, I think the kind of use of it as a tutor is a perfectly plausible and legitimate thing for, it to do, for someone to do, depending on what the assignment is and what you're trying to teach. If you're trying to teach how to proofread or whatever for yourself, then, then maybe getting a tutor to do it is, is off-bound. But if, for most cases, it would be within bounds. But if you have no way of distinguishing that case from the case of cheating altogether, then because of that limit of technology, of your ability to tell, you might decide, well, I'm not allowing people to use this at all for just this reason. But whatever it is, I think the advent of the technology calls for pedagogical decisions on all of our parts who are teaching about making clear, getting a sense of what kinds of uses this technology can be put to, getting clear on which ones we think are acceptable in our classes and why, and then making sure that we're structuring our assignments and our ways of telling and assessing them such that we're not asking people to do something we have no way of telling whether they're doing it so that we can't then grade them justly.
So you talked about um, in your presentation, like a lot of the conceptualization of it was in terms of like practical knowledge. And mm -hmm. um, my question is really, I mean, I take it that's coming out of thinking about like Greek philosophy, um, or at least some of it is. But my, my question is like, do you recommend having or like thinking in terms of theoretical and practical knowledge and, and like that, that structure? No, not theoretical and practical. Um, I think the way I think of it is there's knowledge in general, there's practical or how-to knowledge as a subset of it, knowledge about how to do something organized around a goal. I don't think there's theoretical knowledge as a very separate thing except as a like civilian versus military. It's like a, a name for what's left, if that makes sense. Um, but there's the fact of some bodies of knowledge are organized around goals and goals of a, making something or affecting something. And I think it's, it's fine to think of this as craft knowledge or practical knowledge, but I don't think the practical theoretical distinction as it's used in, in Aristotle or Kant for that matter is valid. And I dithered a lot over whether to just call these things crafts or craft knowledge. But then I thought, like, Alan's, what he's doing in the shower is in trying to gain craft knowledge. It's some kind of knowledge of what to do that's sort of too vague to count as a craft. Yeah, I have a lot of um, discussions with people about things where we have, you know, very strong disagreements. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes it happens where, like, we're just great lock, there's not progress, but there's, I guess the big question for me is, what are, like, some of the hallmarks that, like, the person you're dealing with is, like, really engaging with the issue, is really honestly thinking about it, just coming from a very, very different context that's hard for you to see or get behind in a way, or whether they're like, no, they're, they're really not engaging with the, the issue. There's a certain dishonesty there, potentially. Well, there are, if you're really talking about an, an issue and you're trying to explore it together, one of them is can you elicit curiosity from them? Um, when they hear something they're not expecting, are they interested or defensive or something? But not everything that's defensive and not everything that's not a conversation where people are trying to learn from one another is dishonest. It's only dishonest if it's premised on being that. Like if, if I'm coming to you to have a debate um, where you're going to represent one side and I'm going to represent the other, and what we're trying to do is convince the audience which of us is right, and I'm not really interested in your, what you're saying during the debate itself, except as a means to select my next point, and I'm defensive. That's not my being dishonest or not really engaging with you. My, my project here is to present something to an audience, and your role to me is not as someone I'm trying to learn from, right? and vice versa. But if what we're doing is, I say, look, I really want to talk this issue through to you. You have a different view of, of art than I do. I want to understand our views on it. And, and here we are talking, but I'm acting like I'm debating you on a, you know, in a formal setting. There's something dishonest about what I'm doing. Why, why am I using you? In, well, I, I've you know, made it such that we're having one kind of conversation and we're having another. And people often do that kind of thing without realizing it. So I think you want to Think about what is the person doing? Are they trying to learn from you? Are you trying to learn from them? Are you engaged in something cooperatively? And should you be given what you guys think of yourself as doing and what you've rep represented yourself as doing? Thank you. Hi, Greg. Hi, Clytie. Thank you for the talk. Um, my question is on part 4.1 about the mistaken view of craft learning. Uh-huh. 
um, I understand it's not the ideal view to get into anything, that you shouldn't have a preconception of the end and then try to forge means to get to it. But it seems to me that without getting into a craft, you necessarily have a view of what end looks like. And then you approach it as in like, if you want to go into medicine, you look at what doctors do and say something like, I want to be a doctor. Then it leads you to med school. Yeah, so this is, I think maybe I was unclear about what the view I'm rejecting is. So the, the end would not be what doctors do. It would be health of medicine. The end of medicine would be health. The end of baking would not be what bakers do, but bread or something like that. It would be the, the goal of the science. Your goal in learning the science, or sort of learning the craft, is to learn how to do that. And what I'm saying is you might think that the way crafts are discovered or learned discovered for the first time or learned by someone learning them, is that the person who starts the craft has an absolutely clear-cut, determinate view of what the goal of the craft is before they even take up the craft. And then what they're learning is just the means to that end. What are the causes I need to, to, to enact to create a great film? I go to film school knowing exactly what films are great, what's great about films, what greatness in a film consists in, and what I'm going to learn is the techniques that lead to the greatness in film. That I'm saying is wrong. What actually happens is you start film school or start starting to make films if you're the first person who ever did it with some vaguer sense of what's good or bad about a film, some vaguer sense of what will produce it. You know some of the causes and some of the effects going in. Or to put it another way, you have some sense of what a filmmaker does going in or what a doctor does going in. And your learning is learning both about the ends, the goals, in more and more precision and the means to it at the same time. The more you're learning from others rather than discovering it for yourself, the more it's possible to be much further ahead on understanding of the goal than the means, but there's always a kind of back and forth, a reciprocal quality to the process. That's the point I was making. Okay, thank you. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how, when we're looking at somebody else who's in this inarticulate state of knowledge, how we can properly identify and conceptualize their state? Like, if Alito isn't a bozo, what is he? Well, he's bozo-ish. <laughs> um, no, uh, a part of it is that we have to recognize that we are often in this state ourselves. Um, even with respect to something you might think you fully understand now, you didn't always understand it. So what were you like before, and how did you get from there to here? What did you learn? What were the steps? If you really know that the objectivist ethics is true, how did you come to know it? You just read this thing and it's clicked? Well, how did it click? What was it about you that enabled it to click? And did it really click? Or were you going around like knowing it not really for quite a while? And maybe you still are. Or you are with this thing but not with that thing. You've got to kind of be sensitive to the fact that none of us are complete on these things. Um, we're all learning as we go. We all have more to learn, more extension and intention to do in fleshing out our knowledge almost always even on the topic of morality, even if we think we know it, but certainly, if not there, on other topics. And so you kind of get the sense of the different ways to be in, ge in general with respect to knowledge, what they look like, and then 
trying to diagnose where the person is. And in particular, you can do it in a particular area. What are the kinds of things that are going on with, with this person? And in the case of someone like Alito or a particular justice, you know, there are different schools of jurisprudence. There are different worked out ways of conceptualizing what the court is doing. This guy has bought into one of them. Which one? Why? What reasons are there that somebody might have for buying into that? What um, observations that are true are part of what is motivating it? And what mistakes are there? And how then does those mistakes distort the understanding of even the observations that would um, make the position plausible? And then you can think about, well, how do I intervene on that? But that's the kind of thing you'd have to do to understand Alito or Kagan or uh, whoever else. Thank you. But likewise for people other than justices. The court justices are a good model because these are all very smart people who are very thoughtful about what they do, who are thinking about something very important, who are really, really wrong, all of them, about a lot of it, and yet who sometimes make very good and important points that are reflective of things that are important and true. Thank you. Thank you for the talk, sir. I wanted to ask that since you are a parent and we are discussing the issues of moral cognition, especially in regards to how it interrelates with politics, I do have a lot of family members that love to discuss ideas with me even if we never end up agreeing in the end. <laughs> Especially in regards to parents, how does one engage with ideas, especially as they get incredibly passionate and obstinate, how does one still remain respectful and show appreciation for the values that they provided for me without capitulating my ideas or compromising in any way? Well, my son's three. So I've encountered this with things like should we put on our shoes and so forth? Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm making fun of my own state of knowledge with respect to this, not with the question. So that I'm a parent gives me yet no knowledge of how to do this with a teenager who has different political views or philosophical views or taste in music or whatever. Um, uh, to the extent that I have knowledge of that, it's from the same places as I gather yours is as a, a child rather than as a parent uh, and as someone observing other families. Um, I think, in general, with relationships, you want to think a lot about what is this relationship for? What is the value of it to me? And that includes a parent-child relationship as a parent and as a child. And then you want to think about what is what am I doing here? Like, why are we talking about the presidential election? Um, should we be? Is there anything I expect to gain out of it? Am I trying to teach my parents or teach my grown child about this thing? And I'm not the kind of person they would go to for teaching about this at this point. They don't respect my opinion on this. So they do in some ways, but not in others. What is the basis of the relationship? How can that inform the interaction, including what interactions we should have? And with parents and children in particular, it's hard because... Um, early on, the parent's responsible for everything about the child, and then they're not. And early on, the parent needs to judge and help and assist with everything about the child, and then they can't, and it's wrong for them to. And it's a very difficult transition for both to make. Um, so I don't have that much to say about how to make the transition, other than to kind of understand and think about the problem and be intentional about what the relationship is. Once you think about... How do you guide people to moral truths when you think you have them? How do you identify the kinds of observations they're making 
that are going into their thinking about this issue that are legitimate, real, are onto something, but maybe really misconceptualized and distorted, how do you find the babies in that bathwater, and how do you help that baby grow up to moral knowledge, to be the kind of moral knowledge you think it can be, to complicatedly mix a metaphor? You can try to apply that advice that you would apply to anyone with your grown children or with your parents, but it's a lot harder to do with them, in part because it's not a relationship where I think either party wants instruction from the other. And most, a lot of relationships aren't like that. And so if you're on the premise of I've got to change them or make them better, or they're on the premise with you, um, um, that's going to make the relationship really hard. And if either thinks the other is on that premise, that also you know, creates tension and distortion. I think that happens with a lot of familiar relationships. There are also issues of respect and appreciation. And um, this is something... Um, I continue to have some difficulty with, with elements in my own family. And I, I think the thing one has to learn to do is to identify and make manifest to the other party in the relationship what the values are that are governing this relationship, why we're both here, and then tie the conversations, including maybe decisions we shouldn't talk about this now, to those. But that's hard to do. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.